welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I am your host, Ruth Haley Barton, and we are in the midst of our Lenten season. And in this season, we are narrowing our focus to look at the issue of justice and the ways in which we fail to love what God loves, the ways in which we need to become more self-aware, more aware of the ways in which we are complicit in injustice, if we've experienced injustice in our own lives, to maybe see this as a, as a season for healing, and also to consider the question about how we ordinary people can become justice leaders, not just people who care about it and, and have feelings about it, but also how we can lead out in the settings where God has given us leadership responsibilities and how we can concretely practice justice in whatever setting God has us in. And so this is week four, and in this week, we are looking at the topic of bringing the darkness to light or bringing light to the darkness. I think either one works really, really well, and I can't think of a better person to talk about this with than my friend Gary Haugen. Gary is so actively involved in literally bringing light into some of the darkest places that most of us never have to think about or look at or consider. But Gary is uh, founder and CEO and former president of International Justice Mission. I know many of our listeners will already have known him. Gary is also an alumni of Transforming Community, Transforming Community 7, with many of his executive leaders. And so he and I have had a good friendship around the topic of justice for many years now. And Gary has also come and spoken to our alumni about the topic of justice. Gary has been recognized by the U.S. State Department as a trafficking in persons hero, uh, the highest honor given by the U.S. government for anti-slavery leadership. International Justice Mission is a global organization that protects the poor from violence and injustice throughout the developing world. He is the author of several books. Uh, Today, I'm going to refer to one of his early ones, Just Courage, but also will refer to one of his later ones, The Locust Effect, Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence. So, Gary, welcome. I'm so glad uh, for this conversation. Thanks, Ruth. I'm uh, really grateful to be with you in that conversation over yeah. all these years, but also now as we enter into the Lent season. Yes, amen. And I think one of the places for that's really fruitful in yours and my connection is this connection between the inner life and the outer life. You know, the life of prayer, the life of being strengthened in our inner beings for the work that God has called us to do, and then the way that you have connected that with your work in justice and how your whole organization really prioritizes formation as it has to do with discerning mission in an ongoing way and also being sustained for your life in a very dangerous mission, actually. And so I have been inspired through the years by the intentionality that you bring in your own life personally and also to your organization around connecting formation and justice. So I feel so privileged to jump into a conversation with you about justice during this Lenten season. I've I've chosen the subject of the darkness bringing the darkness to light or bringing light into the darkness and it's based on the the epistle reading for this week's lectionary and it is Ephesians 5 verses 8 through 14 and we're going to have Terry Wildman read from his First Nations version As weak human beings you were once empty and full of darkness But now that Creator's Spirit lives in you, you are beings full of light. Walk in the light, and all things good and right and true will shine out from you. This will prove you are His children, the ones who seek for ways to make His heart glad. Turn away 
from the path of darkness with its worthless ways. Instead, let your light shine into the darkness to show the way out. The shameful things done under the blanket of night should not even be spoken of, for the light shines into the darkness and takes the mask off its empty ways. It is like the sunrise that pushes back the night and brings the light of a new day. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, come back from the dead, and the chosen one will shine on you. So Gary, whenever I think of your ministry, I think about light and darkness. I think about the, the dark places that you and your team enter into to rescue people who are being exploited under the cover of darkness. And I think about the light that you shine in legal systems in terms of how legal systems and systemic structures actually enable darkness and injustice and exploitation. So that's why it's a privilege to talk to you in this week of Lent, because I think of you and IJM as being an organization that really actively brings light to some of the darkest places in our human experience. And so as we get started, I wanted to talk about a story that you shared with us here in the Transforming Center when you came and spoke to our alumni. You actually started out by sharing your own personal story of growing up, I think, in a Baptist church. Am I correct? That's right. And never hearing a sermon about justice. And I've always, I've always been struck by that. I've always thought about it and thought, how does this happen when God is a God of justice? God is clear that God loves justice. In the book of Micah, there's this statement that what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And I've wanted to have a dialogue with you about how does that happen? How does it happen in churches that we don't talk about justice or that you as a child could be raised and never hear a sermon about justice, and then what your journey has been from hearing nothing about justice in your childhood to now giving your whole life to championing justice in very dark places. Well, thanks, Ruth. It's it's actually my situation would not have been all that peculiar for uh, especially American Protestants. Indeed. Because it was really the situation that a lot of the American Protestant tradition just took a break from preaching from the and teaching from the scriptures about justice for about a hundred years, <laughs> most most of the twenty first century. So, why would that be? Substantially, because what we teach about in church tends to be driven by what our preoccupations are, and mm -hmm. much of the sort of Protestant American preoccupation in the twentieth century was about really two things: uh, the afterlife how you get saved so that you can go into heaven after this life, and then matters of personal piety as it related to a set of especially uh, of sins, uh, sort of Ten Commandment kind of basics of personal good behavior, um, and very little teaching about the, the scriptures around the themes of injustice, much of that was driven by a concern and a fear that the language of the Bible related to justice, to things like oppression and liberation, had been co-opted by a political agenda, especially of a liberal political agenda, uh, but also a liberal theological uh, agenda. And so it was the socialists and the communists 
truly in the 19th century and then into the 20th century who were talking about justice, who were talking about liberation, who were talking about oppression. And it became a concern of more theologically conservative teachers and pastors that if we focused on these issues of injustice and oppression, uh, it was just going to play into the hands of a certain kind of political agenda. And there was some truth to that because there was co-option of those ancient terms, ancient ideas for a political agenda. And so it would be possible for me to be sort of in high school in 1980 and to have, you know, ready to go off to college and have been to church and heard a thousand sermons, but never once specifically to what does the Bible talk about justice because... Number one, that's what the liberals are doing. So it, so if mm. the liberals are doing it, it must be bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then secondly, it doesn't also address the preoccupations, which are how can I lead a more holy personal life? And how can I make sure that I and my neighbors get into the next life? There was nothing but downside to it. You would get yourself preoccupied with what the liberals mm. were uh, distracting everyone uh, from the true gospel because the true gospel was about getting people into heaven in the next life and personal piety. So that's how that's how it happens, I think, in a in a wow. really short, simple nutshell. Thank you. Yeah. That's convicting. Very, very convicting. And it's also kind of tragic. I mean, when you describe that, it just feels rather tragic because it means that there are years and years of time that the Christian church lost out on being leaders in the justice area. Well, it's also related to the paradox that at International Justice Mission now, I am preoccupied with the problem of violent injustice. Yes. And I also grew up in a setting that was very far away from the manifestation of very much violent injustice. I grew up in a nice, affluent suburb in Southern California. My mom and dad were very loving and good people. There wasn't violence uh, in our home. And I lived in a very safe neighborhood. So your theology and your preoccupations from the scripture tend to run to the things that are your problems. And for my, and for most, and I would say a lot of white evangelicals, especially of the 20th century, the problems of violent injustice, which actually were a problem for white evangelicals, in the ninth, in the 19th century had sort of been dealt with substantially for their mm-hmm. uh, sort of urgent priority. So that you can see me in the latter part of the 20th century growing up in a circumstance where uh, violent injustice is really not a problem. And so therefore yeah. my, my church setting is not necessarily going to address it. So this is mostly just a reminder of the way in which our theology, our emphasis from the scripture tends to be driven substantially by our mm. our personal context and our personal preoccupations. Yeah. And we can miss out on a lot if it remains narrow in that way. And thankfully, I came into uh, the leading and teaching of a lot of Christians that helped me out of that narrow space. And one of the things I love about that story is that no one did it by disdaining me, right? Mm-hmm. No one did it by this self-righteous attitude that, that sometimes can dominate or, or those, those conversations. But there I was the oblivious person and mm-hmm. I was gently, <laughs> kindly led to see a broader gospel and a broader context for the scripture. So I'm, I'm always really eager that we similarly sort of 
give people a really accessible way to enter into the good news of Jesus as it as it relates to issues of of justice in our in our world. Yeah. Give us one really concrete example of a moment in that part of the journey where you kind of woke up to something or someone was not dismissive but kind in terms of how they taught or when did you start like hearing the message and from whom and what was that like for you in the moment when you started to become more awake to things that you had not been aware of up until that point? Yeah, it was it was when I went off to university and uh, was very involved with my intervarsity Christian fellowship, mm-hmm. which was quite eager to take on fundamentally some of the tough questions of human suffering. Mm-hmm. So there we were Harvard students, not ourselves maybe particularly suffering tremendously because we were in a very privileged situation. Mm-hmm. But we came to understand that there was suffering in the world. So there's just homelessness yeah. on the way to, to class. Or there is the apartheid crisis in South Africa. Or there's racial violence in Boston. And the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship there that I was involved with was also connected to something called the Seymour Society, which was the black Christian fellowship on campus. And I remember a lot of events and gatherings together where we just had conversations about the realities of injustice and human suffering around Mm. us, particularly the issue of apartheid in South Africa, which was when I was in university in the 80s, that was the big issue on college campuses. And one of the things that made it particularly challenging to Christians was that white South Africans who were the creators and uh, sort of enforcers of the apartheid regime were very devout Christians. 80% of white South Africans were going to mm. church every Sunday. 80% of black South Africans were going to church every Sunday as well. And yet it was the sort of most dramatic example in that era, the apartheid regime, of oppression and abuse and injustice. So how could it that a overwhelmingly Christian culture was producing this textbook system of racial oppression mm-hmm. and and uh, carrying it out against a population of also uh, people who were mm. going to church on Sunday as well. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing for a earnest Christian in the 1980s was a, a puzzle that seemed to suggest there should be further investigation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and you have done that. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, I just love hearing your story in your own words. So thank you. Thank you for sharing it. What was the journey from that awakening then to be choosing? I mean, I'm assuming that some of that drove your choice to become an attorney and to begin to see injustice as something that you yourself would begin to fight. Yeah, I, it was substantially the experience of going to live in South Africa then after graduating mm-hmm. from college and being an intern and serving with church leaders in South Africa who were trying to follow Jesus in the midst of that horrific experience of injustice, and especially the experience of walking with Bishop Tutu and Michael Cassidy as they were trying to lead the church effort, and that it was going to really test what you believed about the Christian faith. There's so much more that that could be said about that. I love what Dallas Willard says, right, where he says, you believe something when you act as if it's true. Yes, and in yes. South Africa in the 1980s, if you were going to stand up for and oppose 
a violent regime of injustice, that regime was going to come after you. And I knew lots of pastors and ministers who were being arrested, who were tortured. I knew some who ended up giving their lives because they were going to set themselves in opposition to injustice, and especially violent injustice. And so that high cost that opposing violent injustice requires really tests what you say you believe about mm-hmm. the uh, yeah. uh, out, of, out of the Christian faith. And then one of the things that did connect to me was clearly that the law was a profession that leveraged the power of law on be, on behalf of those who were weaker in society. The whole purpose of law is to actually provide equal protection for people. So that, that was certainly part of my seeing. Yeah, I think this is a way that is very helpful to, to serve is to mm-hmm. try to leverage the power of law in a society that has established the rule of law to actually protect those who are weakest and most vulnerable, particularly to the abuse of, of violence. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're saying reminds me of the, the verse in Micah where it doesn't say that God requires that we love justice. God says it, that we are to do justice. So you're actually acting and doing justice versus just pontificating about it. And that's been your justice journey. And I thank you for sharing it with us. I'm really hearing the emphasis on violent injustice. And of course, there's a lot of conversations these days that are about microaggressions and discrimination and things like that, which are all extremely important. But I haven't had any guests that have been willing to stake so much to work against violent injustice. And IJM is founded to do that. Could you say a little bit about, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar, about the mission of International Justice Mission and what you exist to be and to do and how that's developed coming, you know, coming forth from your own call? Yeah, it just is true that the most basic form of injustice in human society is one of violence. Injustice is a particular kind of sin. It's about the abuse of power. Justice is the exercise of power with moral excellence. In other words, how do you use the power that you have? If you use it to serve others and to protect the weak and the vulnerable, which is the calling of all authorities in the scripture, by the way, then you're doing the work of justice. But when you abuse your power to take from others, the good things that God intended for them, their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruit of their love and their labor, that's injustice. And one of the most powerful ways that humans abuse power is through violence, coercive, violent power. This is, you know, right after the fall, Cain kills Abel. It's violence. Actually, if you look at the story of the flood, God says he's, he just wants to wipe out the human project because of their violence. And then you have every prophet throughout the Old Testament is calling the, uh, the the authorities to repentance for two things, idolatry and violence. And then you have Jesus violently murdered on the cross. I mean, the scriptures are full of the problem of violence. So International Justice Commission was set up to address that sin in the world, and particularly in very poor communities around the world. So you might know I was the director of the, the genocide investigation in Rwanda in 1994. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that showed is there had been all kinds of organizations dealing with poverty in Rwanda and meeting the, 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 the quite predictable problems of 
hunger and disease and lack of shelter and so forth. But the, the question that came to my mind as I got close to these communities, well, who in the body of Christ is addressing the problem of violence? Mm-hmm. So I, kn- I know and I support those organizations that are addressing the hunger and the lack of shelter and fresh water and, and all those other needs that we think of when we think of poverty. But another issue of poverty that we don't appreciate is the way the poor are chronically vulnerable to violence. So the yeah. question is, from my point of view, in the great panoply of Christian ministry, who shows up when the men of mm-hmm. men with machetes show up mm-hmm. to chase you off your land, to sexually assault mm-hmm. you, to abduct you into forced labor? Mm-hmm. And so that's why IJM was set up is to say, oh, no, this this is another way in which we need to seek to serve and express the compassion and love of God. Yeah. So you saw a gap. You saw you know, a, a need that was not being fulfilled and you just walked right into it and were called into that into that space. And you do that uniquely, not just by going and removing people from abusive situations, but then that's that's only the first step for IJM, right? right. Then you go after the systemic issues and the police forces and the, the, the systems that allow these things to exist. Could you speak a little bit about the systemic nature of your work? Sure. It- if you think about it, if you were a victim of abuse, let's say your family would be sold into a rock quarry where you're being held as a slave. Or let's just say you were mm-hmm. a victim of torture by abusive people. What you would want is, number one, you'd want someone to get you out of that situation. So you certainly mm-hmm. do want someone to, to help help you get free of the abuse. The second thing you would also then want is the people who are committing the abuse to be brought to justice because they're just going to hurt mm-hmm. other people and there's something that resonates yeah. in our soul the, that, mm-hmm. that justice is done. We work with the local authorities to get people out of the injustice and abuse, mm-hmm. to work with the authorities to bring the criminals to justice. Then the third thing is the long-term restoration of the survivors mm-hmm. of that abuse. But then, let's say you do all that, and we've done this tens of thousands of times. Mm-hmm. IJM has now yeah. worked more than 75,000 of these individual mm-hmm. cases. But if you would talk to the individuals who suffered that abuse, what you would really want is for it to have never happened in the first place. So then the question right. is, why is there so much violence against people who are living in poverty? And what you see is that there just is no actual functioning justice system. In other words, the law is not actually enforced. So the slavery is against the law, the sexual abuse is against the law, the torture is against the law, but the law isn't actually enforced. And so yeah. in poor communities, you have huge numbers of people suffering of this abuse simply because no one gets in trouble for it. So what IJM has done in all the communities where we work around the world is specifically on projects of what's called justice system strengthening. So you strengthen that justice system so it does two things. It actually enforces the law effectively, but it also provides great services to survivors. And amazingly, whenever you provide those two things, in every single project that IJM has done, you'll see slavery and violence fall by between 50 and 85% in just a few years. Mm. Well, you know, I, I'd mentioned in your bio, your latest book, The Locust Effect, where you actually get really clear about why the end of poverty requires the end of violence. And you really make this connection between um, these systemic 
injustices and economic injustice. Can you say a little bit about that work and why you see such a clear connection between poverty and and the kind of violence that you're confronting? Well, it's in some ways just the invisible oxygen that most of us breathe for those of us who live in reasonably stable neighborhoods and communities. That is, there's a reasonable law enforcement system that is protecting us from violence and abuse. If for all of us who are enjoying this podcast right now and we're not afraid that someone is going to assault us or hurt us or rob us, it's because we live in a place that has reasonable law enforcement protecting us. That's why we're having a good day. It's not because everybody's nicer in our community. (laughs) It's because there's a fundamental system that is restraining those, those violent impulses. That's sort of the baseline of law and justice that allows the rest of life to go forward. Now, if you go into a very poor community, one of the things you'll find, for instance, is that one of the most powerful interventions that you can make to help that community get out of poverty is get girls educated. If you can get girls educated through the age of 12, man, that is just perhaps statistically the most powerful thing you can do. At the same time, research now shows that the primary reason girls are not going to school in the developing world is not because there aren't schools or because there aren't teachers. It's not safe to go to school. Mm-hmm. And so this is why we say the end of poverty requires the end of violence, because mm-hmm. you can't provide child sponsorship to a kid that's a slave in a rock quarry. You can't pro- mm-hmm. provide food security and education to someone who isn't fundamentally safe from violence. So that is is a pretty simple focus that makes sense once we think about it. But if there isn't a baseline of safety for people, they can't really get an, to and access the microloans, the education, mm-hmm. the farming tools, the land, the, the, the property that we'd like to help them with. Yeah. So a lot of your work is overseas, entering into very dangerous areas there and seeking to not only remove victims, but also to strengthen justice systems. What, what do you experience in terms of issues of injustice here in the United States that ha- create passion for you and that you, that you and IJM engage um, here on this side of, of the big body of water? Yeah, you may know, Ruth, that before starting IJM, I was a lawyer at the U.S. Department of Justice. Yes. Dealing mm-hmm. specifically with police misconduct here in the United mm-hmm. States. And so in the United States, just like any other advanced economy, we are going to have our own struggles with the, the abuse of power. And one of the wonderful forms of power that we authorize uh, in, in a functioning society is policing. And it is one of the most difficult jobs humans can yeah. do is the job of policing. And if you don't know or have any sort of connection to the local policing effort in your community, I just think that's really something that's very important for Christians to be connected to, to, to know police officers, to know what it is like to try to restrain, have the job of restraining violence within that community. But what's also true is that we give that power of policing to just other human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they have to be supported and strengthened and have accountability for how they are exercising that power as well. Because human beings, if they are given power, are going to be tempted and challenged not to abuse yeah. it. 
And so one of the reasons that we have such episodic attention to the problems of police misconduct is that it it tends to take place in those communities that we pay the least attention to, the mm-hmm. most marginalized communities, the most um, economically under-resourced communities, in minority communities, because those are the places that are ones we frequent frequently lose sight of. They are frequently communities in which there are higher levels of poverty. There are higher levels of criminal violence as well. And so these are difficult it's not always the case, but it can be the case. And so these are difficult neighborhoods uh, sometimes for those who are outside of them to actually be paying attention, like what is really going on? That's just a word to <clears throat> the, that I, I think is going to be true for the America and for any advanced economy is they're going to have to certainly look after carefully how are humans exercising the power of, of law enforcement. We all need and want actually law enforcement. You don't want to live in it because I've lived in places where there's very little law enforcement and you don't want to be on your own against other human beings who want to uh, hurt you. But we have to be careful about how that policing is itself policed. Yeah. So what happens in the heart and mind of Gary Haugen when you see some of the most recent horrors that have happened? Like let's like right now, Tyree Nichols is is, you know, top of mind and in our hearts and an innocent man who was brutalized once again by those offering policing efforts. What happens inside you when you see this still being such an issue for us here in a civilized country? Yeah, well, it it, it just does point to the vigilance that is always required mm-hmm. when it comes to the human exercise of power. Yeah. And it is really important to try to understand why would these police officers act in such a brutal manner? Mm -hmm. This is something that we have to also examine with some depth and with some attention span that lasts for a while, because Mm -hmm. these are precisely the issues that I was working on at the U.S. Department of Justice 30 years ago. I joined the Department of Justice just a a few months before the Rodney King beatings in Los Angeles and the Mm -hmm. tremendous upheaval that was set off because Mm -hmm. of that abuse. And so, again, that's why we need, I think, at least two things. We need a sustained attention span and we need a willingness to look deeply at the challenge of how humans exercise power and that superficial or sloganeering kind of approaches to these problems won't take us to the depth that we need to have to really understand how we as followers of Christ engage these issues. Because I think it is really critical for Christians to understand how profound the problem of violence is in the story of the Scripture. And that the primary way that God set forth for humans to to deal with the problem of violence and the which is really the abuse of the weaker and the vulnerable was to establish rulers and governments or the state to restrain it and that's actually their god-given mandate it's what all the prophets called the rulers and authorities too which is to exercise this power from god for the purpose of protecting those who are most vulnerable and those who are weakest. And so 
this is something that all the way through to John the Baptist, who, uh, when he is, uh, calling people to repentance, he calls everyone to repentance, but he specifically names three groups. He names the tax collectors who are abusing their power and extorting money from the people. He addresses the soldiers who he says are extorting money from the people. And then King, the, the, the King who's abusing his power to take another man's wife. So it's just interesting how in each of these, there's a very prophetic attentiveness to the abuse of power and especially the violence. And so issues of child abuse, issues of gender violence, these are things that Christians, I believe, really need to be attentive to because certainly the, 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 the heart of God is attentive to it. And yeah. the scripture provides us with really, really deep teaching about this calling. Right. Which makes it all the more striking that it's something that often is missing in even our sermons and you know, Christian education curricula and stuff like that, because it's such, it permeates scripture, so much a part of God's heart and so much a part of who Jesus is and what he taught and what he prioritized in his own teachings. I think so. Well, I personally am extremely grateful for the work that you and IJM do and also grateful for the clarity that you bring to issues that sometimes can feel so overwhelming Mm -hmm. and so tied together in such a knotty, you know, ball of thread that you can't pull out the threads, but you are pulling out really important threads so that we can, we, you uh, can deal with them as the threads that they are contributing to a society that I think would be more honoring to God and what God wants for God's children. I have two things I want to ask you about before we conclude. One is, Talk to me a little bit about the connection that you see between formation and mission, justice in particular. I mentioned earlier on that that's one of the ways in which our conversations are really enlivening to me is the strength which, with which you see uh, the connection between our spiritual transformation in Christ and our passion for justice, and also how our ongoing attention to our spiritual transformation sustains us in the mission to confront justice. Can you just say a little bit to us about the way you experience the connection between your own personal transformation um, and the call to dealing with injustice? Yeah, I I think um, the first thing which became manifest to me is that if I and my colleagues, brothers and sisters in Christ, were going to be taking on this really brutal evil of violent injustice, we were going to need to stay really, really close to God. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were going to need to talk to him about what we were doing and seeking and wanting to do because, first of all, this work of justice is God's in the world. And so if it's his work, you would think you would want to talk to him a lot about it. And yet what the temptation is for humans you know, for us and for me, it's just get very passionately busy. And um, out of that passionate busyness, you can just end up being foolish. You can burn out. There's a, a tremendous unsustainability to any pursuit of, of justice if it isn't done with enormous patience and the capacity for perseverance and long suffering. So, I and my and my brothers and sisters, we just needed to be more like Christ to be able to take on mm-hmm. such a struggle for their to have the courage to not be afraid, to not be anxious, to not be angry. All of these internal things, right? We we lead out of who we are on the inside. 
And so it was going to be an attentiveness to the interior that was going to be so vital to not being foolish and burnt out. And this was, of course, very counterintuitive for those of us who are so action-oriented. But to see the way that actually this eagerness to to act was a good, was a good thing. God could use that. But like all good things, it can also become an idol. Um, to think that oh, the power to actually take on this injustice is is going to actually come from what I do or don't do. And yes, God may use it, but the real power is going to come from Him. So, so we like to say that protecting the poor from violence is God's weight. But it's our work, and we're going to try to do it Jesus' way. And the way that Jesus did things in the world was to stay close to the Father and to teach his, his friends to love each other. And so similarly, we needed to be very intentional about first staying close to the Father. So that means we begin every day by 30 minutes of stillness. Uh, no work, no emails, no conversations, just solitude and silence with God to order the interior for this tough struggle. And then we would work for two hours and then stop what we're doing and then draw close to the Father again together in prayer. And so every single day, it's that these these very intentional rhythms of, of not working, uh, not relying on oneself and their own activities and powers and capacities and actually drawing close again to the Father um, and asking Him for the spiritual resources to um, to be the kind of people who actually want to be in the midst of this struggle. Because if you think about how hard it is to fight against injustice, it's going to take a long time. It's going to be scary and it's going to be frustrating and you're going to mm-hmm. have lots of losses what are the chances that I'm going to be manifesting a lot of the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of all that mm-hmm. along the way? That's really, really hard. You can set up the best circumstances possible and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit will be hard. But now put mm-hmm. me into a super stressful, difficult, mm-hmm. long-term struggle for justice. Wow, I'm going to need to constantly attend to the interior. So we've actually constituted ourselves as a community of Christian spiritual formation. And everybody who joins IJM just says, yeah, I'm in for this commitment to rhythms of spiritual exercises and spiritual formation that will hopefully give me greater access to God's grace so I can actually be the kind of person I most want to be in the midst of this struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed our conversation very much and always am inspired to talk with you, Gary. So thank you so much, not just for this conversation, but for your life and for your calling and for how you've been able to partner with God in something that God cares about. And that is God's love of justice for all God's people. We have been ending our times together with our guests, wondering what a spiritual practice might be for those of us who are listening and want to do more than just have warm feelings about justice, have passion about justice, but who actually want to become justice leaders. And if we cannot be an attorney or someone who is running into the darkest places and, you know, rescuing victims from exploitation, do you have a practice that we could consider in this Lenten season that would help us to continue to develop our not only our love for justice, but also our leadership 
in justice arenas? Is there a practice that that you might recommend that we consider um, during this season to help us love what God loves? I think maybe I would suggest exploring, hopefully through your church community, ways in which you might be able to draw close to those who are survivors and victims of violence and those who are trying to serve them and to see if you could learn something of their stories and and to pray for them. So is there a, a child protective services office in your area? Is there a shelter for women who are suffering domestic violence? Is there a police chaplain nearby in, in your area? Somebody who either by their personal experience is encountering this this problem of violence and and just draw close to their life and see how you can pray with them and and for them i just don't think there's any substitute for a very humble vulnerable open proximity to those who experience acutely this sin of violence and then those who are seeking to serve them and to just draw close mm -hmm. And to just see how God might allow you to pray for them. And not, I think reading books are good. There's good movies to watch. There's good ways to connect to this through some mediated vehicle. But if there's a way to actually draw close to the actual humans who, who suffer and engage the, the problem of violence in an appropriate and healthy way and to pray with and for them, I think that would be something, a space in which Jesus mm -hmm. might, might work quite powerfully. Yeah. Well, it strikes me that violence is a very dark thing, and then there are many ways in which our sexuality has been distorted in our culture. And because you're dealing with both, oftentimes, uh, violence and then also sexual exploitation, that's a very, that's a, that's a very dark place to seek to bring the light and I just pray that um, anything having to do with violence, especially coupled with sexual exploitation, would be a place where we as Christians would always be pretty aggressive in bringing the light of God into those very dark places. And let's pray that during this Lenten season, that would be our intent and that it would change us permanently. <laughs> in order to be bringers of the light, as, as you all have been. So thank you very much for this conversation. And I'm praying that God leads us on into the way that each one of us can become justice leaders and light bearers in these arenas. Thanks, Ruth. God bless you. Mm -hmm.